Well, good morning. Well, yes, this is my very first time, and boy, this sounds like I'm booming through the church. I've got both my technology and my paper copies because I don't want tech to go down. So I'm actually ripping off the corner of my paper copies so I don't have to do a lot of paper flipping. And I am using paper because with my bifocals, I can see it more easily. Well, I am Linda Tatarski, and I can't tell you what a privilege it is to get up here to be asked to share in front of you to bring today's message. Our topic today in the Advent series is family. And as God often does, he chooses the person with the absolute least experience in this so that he may receive the glory. He chooses the person who is absolutely does not have any experience, and the irony is not lost on me that Marshall asked the woman who, at 59, has spent 97.5% of her life, yes, I did calculate that out, as a single woman. I've never had a biological family of my own. However, a year and a half ago, um, in just a few days, exactly a year and a half ago, I did get married to the gentleman in the white hair back there, Jeff Tatarski, a man with nine children. So poof, instant family. So next slide, here's a couple wedding pictures, just so you can see that really good things can happen to you at any time in your life. As far as speaking, it also freaks me out just a little bit, the thought of preaching, because not only do I have kind of a natural tendency to feel inadequate to the task, also, um, quite frankly, I'm still working on my theology of women in the pulpit. But as I've prayed about it and received a lot of encouragement from people I highly respect, such as Marshall and Jace and Wes, and of course, my husband, I believe that God is telling me, Yes. So with that as a backdrop, I am sharing with you this morning some different thoughts that I've been pondering over the last few weeks on the topic of family. So first, let's take a look at that first Christmas and the main players. Who was Jesus' family? Oh, I'm sorry. That's an extra one. Mary. What do we know about Mary? We know that she found favor with God and that she was someone who simply said yes to God without pride, without fanfare. She did not look for recognition and neither did she say, Lord, I can't do this. She simply said yes. In particular, she said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. God is looking for the humble in heart those who simply say yes. It is not about performance. And oh, what a hard lesson that is for me because I either want to do something perfectly or not at all. I want to be recognized for what I do well and I do not want to fall short, especially in comparison with someone else. So Mary's response challenges me. Of course, she must have been excited that of all the women throughout history, she was chosen to carry the Messiah. But her response in the midst of the unknowns, I find marvelous. In my life, 
God has so many times dropped gifts in my lap, jobs, people, opportunities. And because I am not a huge risk taker, God always with a gift says, are you willing to say yes? And it's not always easy because there is risk. For me, yep, getting up here and speaking this morning, this was a big wrestling match. I have all kinds of reasons not to say yes, and here is some very honest disclosure. What are my, my hesitations? Number one, you want me to talk about family? But I don't know how to address this topic. I've never raised kids of my own. I do not know the highs and lows of raising a family. But I was raised in a family, a very good, loving, stable, God-fearing family. And therein lies my next point of reticence. I do not want to disregard that some of you were not raised in very happy families. Some of you have, may have suffered abuse or neglect, and maybe you're still suffering some sort of abuse. Maybe you have suffered all kinds of family stress and dysfunction, or maybe the loss of someone that you really love. And maybe right now, you are in the midst of family breakup. Whatever the situation, and whether or not I can address your particular situation, this I do know. God sees you. He knows you, and he cares. My second point of hesitation, do I have anything relevant to you? Do I have anything worth sharing and anything that is actually theologically sound? Well, my husband and Nancy Burnett, thank you, had to remind me that especially in comparison with those of you who are wonderful speakers. I do not need to compare myself. I need to just be me. Is there anyone else out there? Probably especially the women who deal with the comparison thing. I know a lot of us, I know I do. I don't know about you. My third point, this is a little bit difficult, but it's my new family. I think there's a part of me that still fears calling Jeff's kids family because I wonder, have I earned it? Have I earned the right to be called that? Now, I know in my head that when I married Jeff, I just did become part of the family. There was no earning involved. But in my heart of hearts, there's still a part of me that feels like I need to earn that. And then, of course, there are the responsibilities and the privileges of grandparenting. And by the way, I wish I had a picture up here, but we now have a new granddaughter. There are four of them. Two weeks ago, she is just a beautiful little girl. But I wonder, how is it, number one, okay, here's a point of disclosure, and I am just expecting the the collective gasp. How is it that at 59, I cannot remember a time in my life that I have ever changed a diaper? <laughs> okay, that is embarrassing. What if I don't know how to do it? 
The five-year-old is probably going to know how to change a diaper better than I am. But that aside, more importantly, will I be able to love these little ones well? Will I be patient and kind? And will I know how to be a loving authority and still be within the respects and wishes of the parents? And I'm sure I'm not the only grandparent that has wondered that. So really, you want me to talk about family? <laughs> I, I don't know. In fact, when Marshall first asked me, I said, absolutely not. <laughs> but if you want, I'll pray about it. So now, let's go back to Mary. We see that Mary humbly and quickly said, yes. Though doubtless many young Israeli girls dreamed of carrying the Messiah, did this encounter with Gabriel meet her expectations? I suspect not. And how many hundreds of thoughts ran through her mind in a split second, being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, becoming pregnant out of wedlock, and how do I tell Joseph? Hmm, how about my community? Am I going to be ostracized? And God, I'm only a young teenager. How am I going to know how to raise your son, the Messiah? But you know what? Scripture doesn't say anything about her response like that. All it says is that she was faithful. She found favor with God, and she said yes. She must have been a young woman of incredible faith. So now who is Joseph? We know that he was from the line of David. We also know, scripture tells us, that he was a just man. When he discovered that Mary was pregnant with someone else, but who? Matthew says he decided to divorce her quietly, not wanting to put her to shame. Interesting that he's called a just man, not a kind man or a compassionate man. The word just implies that he was faithful to God and to his law. Joseph did not want to dishonor the Lord by marrying an unclean woman, but he clearly loved Mary. And rather than elevating himself in the eyes of others by making a public display of Mary's supposed unfaithfulness, he had it in his heart to be kind. Again, godly qualities, faithful to God, compassionate toward others, and humble a reflection of God himself. So now, who is God? Well, that is the monumental question, isn't it? What I see, though, is that God chooses those who reflect him. When he chose to enter our world in bodily form, he chose to entrust himself to humble human beings. Our God is humble. Just chew on that. We see different instances in the Old Testament where he listened and, quote, took counsel from a man. First, there was Abraham. When God was ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, 
Abraham contended with God for just a few righteous men. Lord, don't destroy the city. And God listened to him. He still destroyed the city, but he was willing to negotiate with Abraham. And then there was Moses. Moses pleaded with God not to destroy the Israelites when they turned to idolatry. And this after God had brought them out of Egypt miraculously. Moses contended for his nation saying, God, if you're going to destroy this people, then blot me out of your book as well. And God relented. Why? Because both of these men were men humble and after his heart. So the, the point is that God is not a tyrannical, distant God. He comes to humanity and humility relationally. To be God's friend. What a thought. And now God, the God who always has been, the God who created the universe, Psalm 8 declares, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And now this God entrusts himself to his own created beings. He enters the world as a baby putting himself in a humble human family, having to be cared for, probably his diapers change more skillfully than I, having to be cared for by lowly people. And he was born in a stable in the midst of dirty animals. Our God is a humble God. I also ponder the lineage of Jesus. In the book of Colossians, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the creator of all things. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And again, He humbles himself to come not only as a helpless baby, but to a family line that was far from perfect. What do we know of Jesus' lineage? Okay, so there was royalty definitely in his bloodline. Luke states, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But in his lineage, his earthly lineage, there was also deceit, jealousy, adultery, prostitution, paganism, and murder. What kind of God, what kind of Savior plants himself squarely in the middle of a highly dysfunctional family? I can just hear it. Are you kidding? This family is too tainted. Born in a stable? To a couple of poor teenagers? Messiah? Certainly not one 
who will save the Jewish nation from Rome. No. And it's true. He didn't. He did not do that. He did not powerfully rescue Israel from the tyrannical rulership of Rome. Not in the way that they expected. No. Instead, this God is one who desires relationship with humanity. And he was bringing freedom to those who had ears to hear and hearts to receive what he was giving. More than power, more than earthly freedom. He came to bring a different kind of freedom, much deeper. A freedom that is truly life-giving. And so we see a God who laid aside power and prestige. He humbled himself, was born into a lowly family, and became servant of all. This is upside down. Our God does things so differently from the world. Now, in addition to the big headlining stories of victorious royalty or moral defeat, we also see in Jesus' lineage the humble stories of redemption. How about a wonderful story of individual and family redemption? The story of Elimelech. Who? Elimelech. Who took his wife and two sons to Moab when there was a terrible famine in Israel. Moab. The Moabites were a people that God was very displeased with because of how they had treated Israel treacherously. A people of whom God said, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Well, the two sons of Elimelech marry Moabite women, which, by the way, was not forbidden. And then all three of the guys up and die. Oops, this was not in the plan. And oh boy, this is not looking good for his widow, Naomi. With no family and no means of support, she decides to return to her homeland of Israel, which is no longer in famine. One of her daughters-in-law begs to remain with her and persuades Naomi with her statement, your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. This is Ruth. She is a Moabitess, and yet God includes Ruth in the lineage of Jesus. He takes mercy on her through Boaz, a kinsman redeemer. And through Boaz, Ruth is adopted into Israel, and Naomi is redeemed and given new life. But why Ruth? Why does God bring her and other unseemly and tainted women into the lineage of the Messiah? Why do they receive a place of honor as the only women mentioned in Jesus' lineage in the book of Matthew? God has a humble 
heart. And he seeks to honor those who humble themselves before him with trusting hearts. So where does this all leave us in the present day? Family is important. God likes humility and honors those who have it. Family can be messed up at times, and God can redeem dysfunction. I also like the idea of adoption. I mentioned that Ruth was adopted into Naomi's family through Boaz, their kinsman redeemer. She was an outsider to the family of Israel. Adoption, a really important concept because it is God's heart. Well, I have a very good friend named Brandy who is right there this morning. She and my friend Kristen, my sisters in Christ, who are here this morning as part of my cheering club. Love them. But Brandy was adopted as a baby. Her biological mom gave her life and then knew that her life circumstances were such that it was really best to put her up for adoption. Brandy was taken into a family and raised by a loving, nurturing family. And she knows the importance, even through the struggles, of being adopted. Now, I, too, have my own story. I've been adopted into another family. Now, at the beginning, I told you that I had been single 97.5% of my life. And back in 2003 or four, there was a man that I knew in another church who prophesied over me. And he said, Linda, God sets the lonely in family, quoting Psalm 68. And then he said, I believe that God has a family for you. Okay. 15 years later, I'm going, yeah, right, where is this guy? Let me look him up so I can stone him for being a false prophet. And then when I had all but given up, God plops this man in my life. And with him came nine children and now four granddaughters. I have been adopted into their family. I mention this in particular as a stepping stone into the thought that we all, when we humbled ourselves to receive Christ as our Savior, we were adopted into God's family. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. The Greek word here that is translated adopted to sonship, it's a legal term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male son in the Roman culture at that time. From the Catholic website, Aletia, comes this description. In ancient Rome, adoption had a powerful meaning. When a child was born biologically, the parents had the option of disowning the child for a variety of reasons. The relationship, therefore, was not necessarily desired by the parent nor permanent. The biological kids. Not so, however, if a child was adopted. 
In Rome, adopting a child meant that child was freely chosen by the parents, desired by the parents. That child would be a permanent part of the family. Parents could not disown a child they adopted. An adopted child received a new identity. Any prior commitments, responsibilities, and debts were erased. Does this sound familiar? New rights and responsibilities were taken on. Also, in ancient Rome, the concept of inheritance was part of life, not something that began at death. Being adopted made someone an heir to their father, joint sharers in all his possessions, and fully united to him. This is significant. We are in the family of God because of what our older brother and kinsman redeemer, Jesus, has done for us. Just like for Ruth, God humbly and lovingly adopts those of us who simply bow our hearts to him. Paul states, but when the set time had fully come, next slide, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. That's in Galatians. And in Romans, he says, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Notice there is no mention of earning. When I talked about feeling like I somehow have to earn the right to be called family with Jeff's kids, even though I now just am family, God also says we just are part of his family. No earning involved. This family includes all peoples of the earth, no matter what culture, background, race, or gender, no matter where you've been, no matter what you struggle with, when you received the gift of salvation in Jesus, you became a part of God's family, a child with full inheritance rights right now. But that's a concept that I've actually struggled with many times. The reality of life sometimes gets in the way of fully grasping all that this truth means. We may think things like this. Okay, God. So I'm adopted. I have full rights as your child, but life is still hard. I don't always feel like I'm a child of a king. I don't see any special privilege. All I see and feel is difficulty. My heart is broken. I feel hopeless, especially in this holiday season when supposedly it's the most wonderful time of the year. And I just sang in front of you. So... What is the solution? Paint on a smile and say Merry Christmas instead of a Happy Holidays when you go to Walmart? No. It's called the family of God. As Wes talked about last week, within the family, we are given the privilege to enter into others' pain and suffering. And I add, as well, joys and celebrations. 
When I first started thinking about the topic of family, I jotted down some characteristics of family. So there are similarities in a family. Bloodline, DNA, unless, of course, you're adopted. Similar passions, goals, mission. And the obvious, outward physical traits. So now, okay, I have to brag on my new family. So here's a couple of pictures of the kids. One, the one on the bottom is about 2010, and then they did a remake of that seven years later up on top. If you can see it, are they beautiful or what? And can you tell they're in the same family? Oh my gosh. So I love these kids. They're actually all adults. The youngest is 17, but they're beautiful, and they are in the same family. And then, of course, there's some differences within the family, maybe different passions, talents, skills, personalities, humor, etc. But what are some character qualities of the ideal family? Consider some of these words with me, particularly in light both of your own family and the larger family of God. I took some definitions from the Oxford Language Dictionary. kind of dry up here. First is community. Here's the definition. A feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. In Acts 2, I won't read that passage, but in Acts 2, 42 through 45, it's when the believers came together. They had everything in common. They listened to the teaching of the apostles, and they shared together. Um, they worshiped together, they prayed together, they ate together, they witnessed miracles together, and they shared their resources so no one was in need. Community. The next is nurture. The definition is the process of caring for and encouraging the growth or development of someone or something. In Ephesians 4.29, that one says, do not let any unwholesome talk. You have to think about what that includes. Any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Whew. That's a tall order. Something to really be mindful of. The next is knowledge, and I said of, knowledge of, here are some similar words, awareness of, recognition of, appreciation of, perception of. And are we taking the time and energy to really know others, to know them inside? The next word is grace. And the definition that I got was just courteous goodwill. I like that. Colossians 3, 12 through 14, I could probably quote it, but I don't want to make a mistake. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Are we being gracious? The next word I had was sacrifice. The definition is an act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. In other words, how about relationship is more important than being right? <laughs> 
John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And are we willing to sacrifice our rights, money, time, etc.? Fill in that blank. The next, I think the last word is protection slash safety. The definition being a person or thing that prevents someone or something from suffering harm or injury. My question is, are we committed to protecting others physically, emotionally, spiritually? Do we protect their reputation? Do we give others a safe haven? So who really is our family? In the book of Luke, it says, now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. But they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And he replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. This church has been a family to me and Jeff. We cannot express how much we love you. And we have just begun to get to know many of you. We look forward to being family with you. So these have been my thoughts on family, but I can't leave this without giving you a charge. Let's be family. Be aware of those around you. I think we do a pretty good overall job of that here, but let's not rest it there. Let us be about continually asking the Holy Spirit to highlight those around us who need an encouraging word, maybe a physical touch, an invitation to dine and talk, maybe a monetary gift, or perhaps a loving word of truth. This holiday season, ask God who he would have you reach out to. Ask him how you can be family to someone who needs to be reminded that God loves them. And today, if you are in a place of loneliness or discouragement, I encourage you to cry out to God. Seek his heart for you. He loves you. And is there someone that you can reach out to? Ask him for the strength and boldness to take a necessary step. Maybe to even make someone aware of your brokenness. And realize, brokenness does not have to mean shattered in a thousand pieces, although it could mean that. If a tiny little thing is broken inside a toilet, it won't flush. I found that out a couple months ago. You may have a small amount of loneliness or a small dysfunction in your family, etc. please do not feel that this is not worthy of someone else's time and attention. Be bold. Reach out. We are family. I could go into another song, but I won't. Let's show the world that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. So 
there you have it. A look at family maybe a little differently than how you imagined a sermon on family, but this is what God laid on my heart for you. Love your family well, and let's be family to one another, seeking God's heart on how to humbly love well.